morning. On behalf of the Curran Institute, I'd like to welcome everyone here to the Ohio State University. Hope your travels were light, and I hope you get a chance to see the fair city uh, after the conference. Uh, my name is Travian Mitchell. I'm a first-year graduate student here at the Ohio State University. I'm working on my graduate studies in education administration, uh, doing my research in urban school leadership. Uh, right now, I would like to uh, give a special thanks on behalf of the current institute to all of our co-sponsors. They include the Multicultural Center, the Commission on African-American Males, the Bell Resource Center on the African-American Male, Black Graduate and Professional Student Caucus, College of Public Health, Department of African-American and African-American Studies, College of Education and Human Ecology, the College of Physical Activities and Educational Services, and a special thanks to the Kellogg Foundation, who is a major con contributor uh, to of funding uh, to the conference and on African-American male research. Now for the introduction of our guest of honor. The Honorable Ray Miller is the 14th African-American elected to the Ohio State Senate in the state's 203-year history. He currently serves as the minority whip of the Ohio State Senate. In addition, he serves as president and CEO of Professional Employment Services of America and a full-service executive, a, a, a full executive search firm. Senator Miller is the chief sponsor and the most Senator Miller is the chief sponsor of some of the most significant health care, human services, and education legislation ever enacted in the state of Ohio. Such, legisla such legislation includes creation of the Ohio Department of Alcohol, Drug, and Addiction Services, the Community Mental Health Act of 1988, and the Ohio Commission on Minority Health, where he serves as founder and chairman. He is known as the father of Head Start funding in Ohio, in Ohio because his sponsorship of legislation that established the nation's first state-level funded for Head Start program. In addition, Senator Miller is, is a, is authored, has authored legislation which established the Institute for Urban Education at Central State University. He also established a 25% set-aside for minority health programs from Ohio's $10 billion tobacco settlement agreement and successfully lobbied for the Capitol Square Review and Advisory Board, <clears throat> pardon me, to establish a memorial in the State Capitol building recognizing the accomplishments of George Washington Williams, who was elected in 1879 as Ohio's first African-American legislator. Miller is also the chief sponsor of legislation which created the Ohio African-American Hall of Fame. At the national level, Senator Miller served as the White House staff of, as deputy, deputy special assistant to President Jimmy Carter. Prior to that, he served as the assistant of director of legislation uh, for the African American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees and vice president of minority affairs for Columbus State Community College. Miller, Senator Miller is highly regarded as an expert in the development of public policy on health, education, and human service issues. His accomplishments are numerous, and he is recipient of more than 500 community, state, and national awards. Senator Miller is a member of the Second Baptist Church and is a life member of the NAACP and Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. He serves as the, on the boards of Community Research Partners and the Ohio Commission of African American Males. 
Senator Miller has established the Center for Urban Progress, which partners with the African-American and African Studies Community Extension Center at Ohio State University to conduct Ray Miller Institute for Change and Leadership. The Institute is a 10-week program that utilizes a multidisciplinary approach for teaching, for teaching essential leadership skills and attributes to African-Americans who aspire to change who, who aspire to be change agents within their local communities. In addition, he is chairman of the International Institute for Democracy and the National Progressive Leadership Caucus, which has one of the which has as one of his primary aims the identification and training of new young leaders to run for political office. A graduate of Columbus, of Columbus East High School, Senator Miller holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science and a Master of Arts degree and public administration from The Ohio State University. He and his wife, Marty, have one son, Ray III. Please join me in welcoming State Senator Ray Miller. Thank you very much uh, for the uh, kind and lengthy introduction. Uh, welcome, everybody. Oh, y'all are so tired. Ooh, ooh. Let's try that one more time. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right. Feel like a teacher in class here. Uh, I, it's a real pleasure for me to have been invited uh, to uh, share a few words. I'm a Baptist and a politician, so I'm going to be watching my watch very closely. Somebody can help me out if, if it starts to sound kind of good. If I lean this way one time, uh, just do this. Uh, if you know me real well, if you don't, you know, see Leonard Hubert over there. and So, Leonard, you can help me out. Uh-huh. You go to the Church of God, and they really know how to shout over there. Uh, I am not going to um, uh, present the kind of data that many of the panelists uh, will present uh, today uh, and this morning with this distinguished panel that we have here uh, right now. Oftentimes, when you do that, you'll end up with competing data uh, that may not be exactly right. So I may re reference uh, a little information just to make uh, the point uh, about the status of African-American males uh, in our state throughout our country that is very, very serious. Uh, it concerns me uh, that I believe we have individuals uh, engaged in this work who are engaged in the work for themselves. Uh, and uh, this is very serious business. So we can't afford to have people who are sort of playing with uh, the status of African-American males. It's very serious, very serious business. Uh, we talk about this data sometimes rather dispassionately uh, when we look at the status uh, of African-American males in employment, as an example, where the rates are oftentimes four to five times higher uh, than the overall population, or uh, with respect to educational achievement. Um, within our school system, and I'm going to say a bit about leadership. Uh, that probably will be the thrust of my remarks, leadership, um, as opposed to focusing in just on the data. But uh, we find 64% uh, of our young children cannot pass a fourth grade proficiency test. Poverty rates are so substantial uh, that we should be ashamed uh, as a state and a nation and sometimes people want to debate this. I'm not up for the debate because it's so bad. 
we want to look at the age cohort, uh, but the number of African-Americans who are incarcerated within our prison system uh, is an absolute abomination, where we have more African-American men in prison than we have in every college and university of every kind in this state combined. Y'all didn't hear me say that one. We have more African-American men in prison, 23,700 in the state of Ohio, than we have African-American men in every college and university of every kind. All of the two-year colleges, all of the four-year colleges, all of the proprietary schools, all of the technical schools, wrap up the African-American males in all of those in the state of Ohio combined, and we still have more African-American men in prison than we have within our colleges and universities, 23,700 as compared to 21,300. At this campus, at the great Ohio State University that I love and many of you love, uh, where I'm an alum, it is sad when I look at the data uh, on the number of African-Americans, period, uh, that are enrolled here at the university and African-American men in particular. We have a long way to go. And don't go to one of our historically black colleges and universities and look around where you'll find the rate of women, African-American women, as compared to men being six, seven, eight times higher. Uh, Some of the brothers might like that, uh, but that's a sad state of affairs when you combine those two. When we look at the numbers uh, of men who are not in college as compared to those who are incarcerated within our prison system. So I certainly want to thank the Kerwin Institute uh, for organizing this important conference. Uh, Everything that the Kerwin Institute does uh, is done at an excellent level, at an excellent level. They don't do anything that's mediocre at all. They have an excellent uh, director in Dr. John Powell, uh, a very good friend of mine. We had a good meeting uh, yesterday talking about some critical issues. And it is so important for this information to go down on the south end of High Street. Uh, I've been working uh, very hard to bridge this gap between the north end of High Street with the largest university in America, the Ohio State University, with more than 55,000 students enrolled, and the policymakers uh, who are enacting legislation that impacts all of us. Uh, We've got this divide on High Street, and I've been trying to bridge that. I've spoken with the chairman, uh, Les Wexner, of the Board of Trustees, and I think he understands that the the fact that we have to do a lot more uh, on the practical side, Uh, on the applied uh, research side uh, to bring about some real change within our community and throughout the state. We want to thank all of the partners uh, for their work and uh, and for their financial contributions and all of the work that they've been doing as well. Um, Leadership. I'm only going to hit a couple of points because we don't have that much time. And, Dr. Powell, good to see you. Um, Now I have to tell all the truth. But in any event, leadership. As we look at these issues, consider this, and I'm not sure if it's on the agenda. If it's not, it should be. Leadership. In the Columbus public school system, we have an African-American superintendent of schools. We have an African-American deputy superintendent of schools. 
We have an African-American chief operating officer of the schools. We have an African-American president of the school board, an African-American vice president of the school board. We have seven members on the school board. Five of the seven are African-American. 64% of our children can't pass a fourth grade proficiency test. I've been doing politics all my life. I ran for my first office when I was 16 years old on 169 North 18th Street as a district representative to the Model Neighborhood Assembly. I never stopped running. Ward committeeman, uh, undergraduate student government here, graduate council. I've always uh, tried to be in a leadership position. And the key thing that you learn is if you have the votes, call the question. Y'all didn't hear me say that either. If you have the votes, call the question. And it seems to me that we have the votes. We have people in position. It is so sad that, that you have to understand that right now you've got to take advantage of the opportunity that you have. If we have these challenges within our education system, talk about a prison pipeline where they start failing at the fourth grade, 64 percent. And then it only gets worse from there. We incarcerate more juveniles than any other state almost in the nation. And you go into the prison system. I speak in the prisons all the time. And you look at all of the African-American men. They're brilliant men. Brilliant men. Good-looking brothers. Sitting in prison. We have laws. Um that are so far out of balance. Take crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine. I've introduced a bill to deal with that subject. I believe it's going to pass next week, finally. It's taken years. Crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine. Sometimes the penalties are almost 100 times greater. How sad. And, and the Supreme Court justice, I, I don't want to say too much, but uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. I don't get This is me talking. Who is so far out of touch? It's a shame. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court commissioned a study on racial fairness in the criminal justice system and the courts. Took them seven years to complete the study. Nobody ever looked at it again. I pull it out and remind the chief justice and the members of the court and the members of the legislature repeatedly about the inequities within the juvenile justice, the criminal justice system within our courts. They want to forget all about that. And so we have um, initiatives that are pending in the General Assembly, most of which I've introduced, that could really help uh, address the critical problems that we have here. But we have leadership. We have leadership. If you look at employment in this city, the executive director of the Workforce Investment Corporation's African-American woman, Suzanne Coleman Tolbert. You look at the, the human resources system in the county. The director is Doug Lumpkin, Department of Jobs and Family Services. You look at the criminal justice system, not the criminal justice, but the children's services system. The executive director is um, Brother... Eric Finner just took the position. Eric Finner. Uh, and on and on, president of the United Way and uh, 
people in all of these positions, state senators, state representatives, all of that, mayor, criminal justice system, criminal justice system now, law enforcement in this city. So the mayor is African-American. The safety director is African-American. The police chief is African-American. It seems to me that there'd be a bit more justice and there wouldn't be as much racial profiling taking place. Um, There wouldn't be the kinds of shootings that take place and then the police are able to walk because nobody wants to bring the pressure and everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid. Hmm. I don't have enough time to go into all of that. Uh, Dr. Dr. Woodson said what? If you can control a man's thinking, I'm only saying this because people are in position and still don't know that they can bring about change. Their minds are locked. Minds are on lockdown. So Woodson said 1926, I believe, if you can control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. If you determine what a man shall think, you don't have to worry about what he will do. Goes on from there. Goes on from there. Oh, it's a powerful quotation. Uh, We have our students in the Ray Miller Institute for Change and Leadership that we're doing with the Department of African American and African Studies Community Extension Center, Dr. Dr. Judson Jeffries, Dr. James Upton, and Dr. William E. Nelson, Jr., uh, and Carla Wilkes working very closely with me. Outstanding program. Why are we doing this? I don't have enough time. I'll say these two things and I'll quit. We're doing this because our young people, African Americans, don't have a real sense of racial loyalty. Ask one of the young students in the program that we interviewed, name a civil rights case had a tremendous impact on African-Americans. Could not name one. Not even Brown versus the Board of Education. Couldn't name one. Was a distinguished graduate of the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Could not name one. Ask this young lady, can you name one African-American female attorney that's made a major difference in America? Could not name one. Not not Barbara Jordan, not Constance Baker Motley, not one. And so we need programs that will help our young people to understand their history and their heritage. Ray Miller, what's that got to do with incarceration? (laughs) What What does that have to do with education? That has everything to do with it. I'm standing here because of it. You know, understanding your history and your heritage and not being afraid to address these critical issues. What difference does it make to have an African-American mayor and police chief and fire chief and safety director and superintendent of schools and head of the United Way? What difference does it make if they don't know that they're supposed to advance first develop, but advance an agenda that benefits our community. What difference does it make? doesn't make any difference. I'll close with this, and then we'll get on with the brilliance of these panelists. Um, A story. 
there was a, a young boy who liked to um, mountain climb and uh, out in Colorado. And so he was up in, in the uh, forested area, basically, and he saw this eagle's nest, Brother Lundy. And in the nest was an egg. And so this young boy took this egg from the nest, took it back down to the farmhouse and put it under a hen. I know something about that. I was born in Hampton, Virginia. If I had enough time, I'd tell you about the hen house and the, uh, the chicken coop and uh, the well and the outhouse and all those things that we had down in Hampton. So he takes this egg uh, from the eagle's nest and he puts it under a hen. A couple days it hatches and out comes this, this eagle. The eagle is in the yard with his quote-unquote siblings. Eagle thought he was a chicken. And so he behaved like a chicken. Walked around like a chicken, even a rooster a little bit, kind of like some of those who occupy key positions. Walked around the chicken yard uh, behaving like the chickens. And then one day an eagle flew over the farmhouse. And there were some stirrings inside of this little chicken. And he said, there's something that I have in common with this bird that has strength, that has boldness, that has vision. That's why we put them on the rostrums in our assemblies in the legislature and in the Congress of the United States. Why is that eagle there as opposed to a chicken? Why is that eagle on your dollar bill as opposed to a chicken? And so it represents strength and boldness and vision. And so that that little baby bird spread out the wings and was able to soar because then... This little chick understood that they were more. He was more than just this little chicken walking around the yard. Brothers and sisters, we have too many chicken yard leaders. Too many chicken yard leaders walking around strutting, thinking they're making a difference just because they look the part. And so you have a responsibility to hold them accountable. At the end of the day, after we look at the data after we fashion some solutions, as we look at agendas that already exist in the state legislature, at the end of the day, then you have to hold the leadership accountable to develop policies, to develop programs, to provide the kind of courageous leadership that will bring about the needed change that we have to have in 2007 and beyond. Good morning, and thank you to Senator Miller for that charge to get us started with the day. And I definitely think our illustrious panelists will be able to challenge us further and make us think even harder and more critically than even Senator Miller has charged us this morning. Welcome to The Ohio State University. I am Dr. Wendy Smooth. 
I am an assistant professor of women's studies and a faculty affiliate with the Kerwin Institute. So greetings. Thank you. Oh, see, now everyone's warmed up now. Good, good. I have the pleasure of introducing our panelists this morning. Each of the panelists will speak for about 15 minutes, and then we will turn um, the panel over to the audience for Q&A, and we'll try and get in as many questions as possible. The first panelist that I would like to introduce you to is Professor Tyrone Howard. Dr. Howard's research, and Dr. Howard is from the Graduate School of Education and Information at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Howard's research is concerned with academic achievement of youth in urban schools. His work is centered on the achievement gap facing African-American and other culturally diverse students. More specifically, his works have examined the disenfranchisement of African-American males in K-12 schools. Dr. Howard has also done research and writing on the influence of culture on learning, critical race theory, and multicultural education. Dr. Howard's work has been featured on National Public Radio and in Black Issues in Higher Education. Dr. Howard, welcome. Our next panelist is Professor Miles Anthony Irving, who is an assistant professor at Georgia State University in the Department of Educational Psychology and Special Education. He received his PhD in Educational Psychology from the University of California at Santa Barbara in 2002. His research investigates the impact of cultural and social variables on human agency and cognition. Currently, Professor Irving is conducting research that examines the relationship of cultural identity and academic achievement among African Americans. Professor Irving describes himself as a reflective, critical practitioner who has worked extensively in the area of urban and multicultural education since 1991. He's also a husband and a father of two children. Welcome, Professor Irving. Our next panelist is Carla Moore, who's a research scientist at the Institute for Behavioral Research. And she's an affiliate faculty member in the Department of Workforce Education, Leadership, and Social Foundations at the University of Georgia at Athens, in Athens. Um, she is... She received her PhD in educational studies from Emory University, where she was a dean's teaching fellow. Her, her areas of academic interest include teacher education, multicultural education, and comparative education. Most of her work focuses on the intersection of race, gender, social class, and immigrant status as related to youth identity, achievement, and school discipline. For example, in her prior work, she has examined the roles of race and socioeconomic status in the creation and treacherancy of the discipline gap among black students. Presently, she is co-editing a three-year study of identity development and academic achievement among black suburban youth. She received a Spencer Foundation grant to conduct a comparative study of disciplinary experiences among black male high school students. Dr. Monroe's secondary area of interest are the history of African-American education and world language, language education. Welcome, Dr. Moore. And our final panelist is 
Assistant Professor Victor Rios, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he teaches juvenile justice, youth culture, and urban ethnography. He is currently working on a book entitled Punishing Race, The Social Effects of Criminalization on Black and Latino Youth. The book analyzes experiences of disrepute that youth have, have with institutions of social control. Professor Rios has written articles on urban youth social movements and the criminalization of youth. He is a native of Oakland, California, and Professor Rios is a former gang member and juvenile detainee. And he conducts his research with this particular perspective in mind. Welcome, Professor Rios. We will now start the panel, starting with um, Professor Tyrone Howard's research. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, everyone. I want to make sure. Okay, we'll work through this. Um, I want to um, first say uh, how uh, honored I am to be here, and I want to I want to make sure that we give special attention uh, and recognition to the Kerwin Institute for um, be the, for the the, the courage uh, and the willingness to uh, to take on uh, this important topic. Uh, as you all know, it's not, it's not the most in vogue topic to talk about issues that are affecting black males. And to put on a conference uh, and to put support and bring in the, the, the kinds of scholars and, and minds and, and, and folks who are here, I think, is, is really commendable. So I want to make sure that we all recognize the importance of, of what the Kerwin Institute has done and also acknowledge those sponsors who have supported this because this is not popular. Uh, it's not easy to take on this important topic. So let's make sure on some level we continue to acknowledge that. Uh, I also want to acknowledge the fact that uh, we've got young people here today, and that means a lot to me. I see some young folks in the back here. And what oftentimes happens is what we talk about young folk, uh, but we don't talk to them, or we don't talk with them, or we don't allow ourselves to be informed by their reality. So I'm, I'm pleased to see them here, and I hope that each and every one of you who are here take an opportunity at some point in time to engage all of us in here about what we're talking about, because this is stuff that we do that in many ways, you may tell us, does not reflect your reality. Uh, we need to continue to be informed by the work that you do, I mean, by the work that you do, uh, by the experiences that you have, and how we can continue to think about ways of improving uh, schooling experiences uh, for African Americans in general. But for this particular purpose, it's African American males. Uh, I want to talk in my brief time here about the the, the idea of uh, the disenfranchisement of African American males, and I frame that within the context of a question which states, "Who really cares?" And I think Senator Miller eloquently stated the fact that we, we can go on and on about the, the achievement data that continues to plague the experiences of African-American males, but we've almost gotten to the point where we, we've become desensitized to these realities. Uh, we hear these numbers with such frequency, it almost it, 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 it affects us as if it's not uh, anything out of the ordinary, and it almost affects us or impacts us as if it doesn't matter anymore. So I pose the question of who really cares? Uh, you know, I venture to say if there was any other subgroup in our country that was disenfranchised to the extent that we see young black males disenfranchised, there would be a major uproar. There would be all types of policy, there would be all types of funding, there would be all types of program to find out how do we change this. 
but it's happened with black males and it seemingly has gone uh, on, and fallen on deaf ears in lots of ways. So I want to just talk briefly about some of the factors and my work is centered around what, we, what I do in teacher education and, and what happens in K-12 schools and as a former classroom teacher myself, some of the factors involved in, in what we see, uh, why we see it, and then briefly uh, how we can begin to think about moving forward to, uh, to address some of these factors. Um, I always say this, uh, use this quote from Marvin Gaye. I'm a big R&B uh, lover, and I think Marvin Gaye posed the question of who really cares, and that's the, the, the sort of the context behind this work. Uh, and I think Marvin Gaye's words here really kind of set a, a context in terms of, you know, we have a, a, a challenge before us, and, and Marvin Gaye posed the question, who really cares to save a world that's in despair? And I think when we think about this research, we've got to be mindful of the fact that if we don't show that we care about what happens with young black males, I don't think anybody else will. So, I mean, we've got to remain diligent and persistent in this fight to recognize the importance of what happens with young black males. Uh, I make a statement quite frequently that, that far too many black males enter schools as question marks and excl exclamation points, but far too many leave as periods. Uh, you all have seen young black males when they enter schools as kindergartners and first graders and second graders, and these are some of the most brightest, eager, enthusiastic students you can find. Uh, they will tell you what, what they think, no matter what you think about what they think. Uh, they will share their opinions. They will share their, their perspectives. They will speak from the heart in ways that we should be cherishing and nurturing. However, unfortunately, something happens in this process of schooling, that these same students who come to us as kindergartners, first graders, second graders, full of excitement, energy, enthusiasm, at some point in time, that, that curiosity around the world is doused, and those exclamation points and question marks become periods. Uh, they no longer have that interest. They no longer have that enthusiasm and eagerness to begin to explore the world around them. We've got to ask ourselves, what happens? And I'm not talking about this happening to young African-American males by the time they get to ninth, 10th, and 11th grade. This process happens as early as third and fourth grade, where young black males have decided for some reason school is no longer for them. And what happens in school is not a part of their reality. We as educators, researchers, thinkers, folks who are advocates in this work have got to begin to ask ourselves, what happens in this process, and to what degree, if any, are we complicit in the ways in which we begin to turn off young black males to what's supposed to be the importance of education? Um, there's a litany of works that, that document the, the, the experiences of black males in schools. Uh, this work is important, and we should continue to revisit this work. There's a, 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 a huge, huge body of research that continues to inform us on K-12 issues, uh, that informs us on, on environmental factors, cultural issues as well, and I think we've got to continue to tie ourselves back to this research base and understand what this research has informed us, but at the same time, continue to build on this research in some ways that continue to enlighten us about the factors that impact young black males. Now, I, I use the work of, of, of my, uh, my good friend and colleague, Garrick Duncan, who maintains the argument that when we think about the kinds of disenfranchisement that affects young black males, it's almost as if, if not almost, but we've gotten to the point where we have classified them as being beyond love. Uh, and by that, what he talks about is this idea that somehow the negative beliefs and perceptions of black males have become so crystallized uh, in the minds of, 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 of educators uh, and community folks that we believe that somehow they are responsible for their own demise. Uh, we have gotten to the point where we blame them. We've, come, we've, we've, we've uh, taken on this victim-blaming approach. And Senator Miller talked about the fact that what we see happening uh, in terms of, you know, folks who are in, in positions of influence, uh, we see this work every day in, back in, in California, working with, teacher working with teachers. Uh, there's this perception that somehow young black males uh, don't bring the same kind of intellectual disposition, uh, that they bring certain kinds of attitudes. So before many teachers have even stepped foot into a classroom with young black males, they've already crystallize some really detrimental kinds of beliefs about young black males. And let me also say this, because I think we oftentimes 
find ourselves in a game of racial politics around this question, where we tend to think that this is an issue with white teachers doing this to young black males. Uh, what we're finding is that these beliefs are, in many cases, just as embodied by black teachers as they are by white teachers, uh, which is something we don't talk much about. But again, the, the idea here is to challenge the beliefs regardless of who has them, whether they be African-American teachers, Latino teachers, Asian teachers, or white teachers. So part of Duncan's framework says we've got to somehow begin to recognize how can we get beyond the beyond love stage where we look at African-American males as being unworthy of our concern, unworthy of our care, un unworthy of our support and nourishment in ways that allow them to continue to be self-affirmed and self-actualized. Uh, if, we, if we were to try to understand how we've gotten to this point and why black males experience the kind of disenfranchisement that they do, we can't take a look at co of contemporary circumstances because so much of this is rooted in the historical uh, development of how black males in this society have been shaped. Uh, and you have to understand the historical journey dating back to the 17th century where, where African-American men in this society were viewed as more or less being physically superior but intellectually inferior. Uh, and some may say that this is a, a, a mode of thinking that is two, three, four centuries old, but the remnants of it still are, are very much a part of the thinking that we see in place in schools today. And so you talk about the black male image that has transformed over time from Mandingo to, to, to hustler to drug dealer to, to entertainer to pimp to all, and I can go on and on and on. Uh, and in some ways, we've got to begin to examine how young black males have even engaged in, in behavior that's only helped to reinforce many of these same approaches. But again, the historical development and ontology of how black males in this society have been captured uh, is in many ways, it shapes the ways in which people in, in, in contemporary circumstances continue to view black males. So I'm not going to go into it here, but the historical development has to be a part of our analysis. Uh, part of my work is centered around achievement, uh, looking at how we know if kids are learning. And, and I'm not going to, I know this is probably tough to see, but you all know these statistics. But, but if you look at the data that, that, that looks at the area of reading, this is where we really get a, a firm indicator of where students are in terms of their overall academic success. Uh, and you look at this research here that's reported by the U.S. Department of Education. It documents the levels of, of, of a reading proficiency at grade four, and that's a key indicator because if students have not acquired core reading proficiency skills by grade four, the research tells us that they're not going to ever catch up to grade level, and the research also tells us that the gap widens in subsequent years. Uh, for African-American children, uh, we see now that the, 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 the national data tells us that we've only got about 27% of African-American students who are at basic when it comes to reading proficiency, and 62% are below basic in proficiency. Uh, and you can go to some of the major cities across the country and see how these numbers are even more startling. In Los Angeles, where I am, the number is 72% who are below basic. Uh, we're talking three out of four who are below basic by grade four. Uh, you look at a city like uh, Washington, D.C., the, the number is about 71%. Uh, you look at places like Chicago, it's 69%. So you go to primarily any large urban area and you see African-American students, and it, when it comes to reading proficiency, are not where they need to be. And so when the academic achievement becomes an issue, you, you all know where that leads us next. Uh, if kids are unable to read uh, with any degree of proficiency, uh, other factors become a part of their reality, behavior, uh, and that's why we see the kind of suspension and expulsion rates that have become far too commonplace uh, in our schools. But it's important to understand the backdrop of this. These numbers are, uh, should be outright uh, startling to us when we talk about the fact that we're not talking about a small number of our kids who aren't at grade level. We're talking about the overwhelming majority of them who are not at grade level. And if kids are not reading, uh, they also suffer when it comes to math, they suffer when it comes to science, they suffer when it comes to social studies, so it affects their overall academic achievement across the board. Uh, which then leads to this reality that we see all too often with regards to special education. 
the students who are not reading on grade level, who are not at grade level in other areas, uh, then become uh, all too often referred for special education services. Without going into all the specifics here, but this Office of Civil Rights data continues to paint the picture that African-American males are overrepresented when it comes to areas such as mental retardation, uh, emotionally disturbed students, uh, students who are considered as having learning disabilities uh, in, in, in a way that's not seen with any other subgroup. Uh, and when you look at this data on the inverse side, when you look at gifted education, African-American males are severely underrepresented when it comes to gifted as well. Uh, and these serve as important gatekeepers because, uh, thank you, because it begins to talk about who gains access uh, to institutions of higher learning uh, in subsequent years. And it's important to note that when we look at that, the, the data on the, the reading achievement that I, I talked about just a moment ago, that in some states now, it's my understanding, and I've got a student who's doing some research at the, uh, on this, when we talk about the prison industrial complex, in many ways, prison, private prison construction uh, is, 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 is pulling off the data from where we see students achieving by grade four. It gives prisons a good idea of what, of the numbers of, of, of beds and how many students they'll be able to house based on these numbers here. So there's a direct correlation we're seeing here between what happens where students fail here and where we project that there'll be some uh, 10, 15 years down the line. Um, I'm going to rush this because my, our time is kind of uh, uh, I'm going, but again, I'm not going to touch on this, but I think we'd be remiss to not talk about the school to prison pipeline and the fact that we see, uh, according to the Bureau, uh, the Bureau of Justice, uh, approximately 791,000 African-American men are incarcerated in the United States. And as Senator Miller talked about here in the state of Ohio, the same is the case when it comes to what we see nationally because we've got approximately 750,000 black men who are in colleges across university. The only subgroup in this country where the numbers are higher uh, in, of being incarcerated than they are of being uh, in college universities. So when you look at these numbers, you talk about young black males who start kindergarten in 2007, 2008, Current data suggests they've got a much better chance of ending up incarcerated 12 years later than they do of being uh, uh, enrolled in a college university. That's a major problem. If we don't know that already, it should only reinforce what we continue to know. Uh, and you look at our spending. The spending, we spend about three times per individual with regard to incarceration than we do per pupil sp expenditure. Uh, so I say if we put the money uh, on the front end, perhaps we can prevent uh, having to put so much of it on the back end. That's if we really are serious about trying to change the problem, which I maintain on some levels I don't think we want to. That's another conversation for another time. Um, let me move on to, to, to how we begin to, to, to address this. And, I, and you know, part of the, the process is we've got to, to, to remove the deficit thinking that exists about African-American males. Um, and we can talk about that with the uh, question and answers at some point in time. Uh, we've got to move to a point where we begin to recognize the cultural wealth, the cultural knowledge that, that African-American males bring to the classroom every single day. So much of our problem lies in the fact that we've got teachers who come into contact. Thank you. Uh, with, with young people who come from very different worldviews. Uh, teachers have sets of experiences, beliefs, experiences, attitudes that are, that are diametrically opposed in some ways to what African-American males bring to the classroom. And this culture clash occurs in nine times out of ten, it is African-American males who end up losing. So we've got to begin to think about how we somehow gulf this, this demographic divide. Um, as I close, what are we seeing as success or essentials for success? Uh, Academic rigor has got to be a part of what we begin to put in place. The research tells us over and over again that if we have students who are in classrooms that challenge them, that push them to think they do much better. Literacy development has got to be a part of it as well. Cultural relevance and curriculum, we've got a study now with about 2,000 African-American males, K-12. We're asking them what contributes to their success. They tell us over and over again that school does not matter. It, it does not reflect their realities, so why should they concern themselves with it? Uh, and we've got to develop cultural competence in teachers where they begin to understand the cultural realities of African-American males in ways that far too many of them do not. 
Uh, and uh, I'll close. And this is some of the one of the things we've got to do. We're talking to young black males about the kinds of uh, curriculum that begins to speak about their experiences. There's lots of literature that's out there that engages young people to talk about their realities that can serve as an important springboard uh, to future learning. I'm kind of rushing through this, but I want to thank you all for your time. And uh, we can talk more in the Q&A session. Thank you. We'll now hear from uh, Professor Irving. I also wanted to let you know that we are, as you might have imagined, we're having some difficulty with the air conditioning system this morning, but there have been several calls put in, and they are actually working on it. We're doing what we can to make you feel comfortable. We've added a fan in the back, and there's plenty of water, so please do partake in the water that's um, out in the hallway. All right, greetings everyone. How are we doing today? It's such a pleasure to be here, and I'd like to thank the um, Kerwin Institute for inviting me out. The, I'm, I'm reminded of a, of a couple of things. I was so fortunate to be able to sit next to uh, Tyrone Howard. We both grew up in Long Beach, California, and um, growing up in the 70s and 80s in Long Beach, it, it's a miracle that I'm, that I'm here today. I'd also like to acknowledge uh, one of my brothers in the audience, Ravel Watts. He was there when I first started graduate school, and it was a, a time of um, loneliness and difficulty. And I, I just appreciate the brother helping me make it to where I am today. Um, today we're going to talk about a program, and it's, I'm, I'm so in sync with exactly where uh, Tyrone was at because it's going to help me transition. I'm going to present some mechanisms and educational um, programs that illustrate and show a difference. And um, the program is called Lionheart. There's a subtext that is going to um, be present throughout my presentation. I'm not going to talk directly to it, but there's a, a subtext. And that subtext has to do with criminality in schools. But the criminality is the criminality that's perpetuated against our young students by teachers, administrators, and the school system. Okay, so this is not criminal activity that the students are bringing into the educational paradigm, but it's what we are doing to our students. And it's having a um, terrible effect in diminishing, um, misdirecting, and derailing the dreams of our young brothers and sisters who are um, currently attending many urban public schools. We have a lot of questions, and Many of these questions are intellectually stimulating and engaging. I don't have time to get into those questions, but out of those questions, there's one that really excites me, and that's the question there at the bottom, which is what part can instructional programs play in shaping, developing, and healing the identity and academic outcomes of our African-American youth, particularly males, um, for this talk today? And that's what we're going to highlight in, in, in my short time with you. Okay, so this program is called Lionheart. Why is it called Lionheart? Well, we just thought about the heart and soul of our youth. We thought about exactly um, the strength, the resilience, and um, 
the excellence that resides there. This is a little background about the program. It essentially is an after-school program that um, helps our young brothers develop and understand who they are, have a clear focus and vision uh, related to education, and have a very clear uh, connection to our community. There are several main areas um, that we focus on, academic enrichment, cultural awareness, character development, and social responsibility. And so these are the areas that we just focus on with them in an after-school program. And I'm actually going to show you an example of what the program looks like. In terms of the framework, we meet once one day a week with high school students, and then we have an additional session the next day with elementary school students. Um, and these are some of the things that we do in terms of the time that we're actually with them. And the program lasts about two and a half hours, um, two times a week. We focus on um, academic coaching, which is basically that subset of skills that um, represent metacognition, being able to think about thinking as it relates to educational success and self-regulatory processes, being able to regulate one's behavior to accomplish their goals. And we sort of guide them and create the infrastructure that creates the possibility to do those things. And we also go to their classes and provide the support that they need at the schools. Okay. Um, what we did is I was working with this high um, elementary school principal, and as the data indicates, he got very concerned. Something was happening with young African-American males at third and fourth grade. I've had a sort of partnership with the school, and we talked about it, and he said, um, you know, Miles, what do you think we can do? And so I said, well, how about if we identify, in your estimation, 25 to 30 of your most troublesome boys? The boys that are always getting in trouble, they're always in your office, they're not listening. Let's find a way to target and focus on them and really invest some time in them. So he said, that sounds like a great idea. So we, he, I had him and the teachers identify the, the kids who were, the, whoever they thought were just the worst students in the, in, in, the, in the building in terms of causing trouble. And what we did is we began to meet with those young, young men and we paired them with some high school students um, as mentors, okay, and we were sort of meeting with, bo with both the, the youngsters and the high school students, and we developed sort of program and curriculum. What was amazing is you, when you see these young men and you look at their faces and you hear their stories, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little bit of a cognitive disconnect. How could these be the worst and most troublesome young boys in the school when they just 100% seem beautiful? And from the first moment that they stepped in the program, they... Um, we have never had any problems with any of these boys because the context of the situation that we placed them in, the structure and the love and the framework, there are just certain things that weren't possible. Um, the, all of the kids you see in these videos will describe themselves as people that don't like school. But twice a week, every week, they show up for hours after school to learn. Okay, so there's, this, there's again, another disconnect. Here, here are people that don't like school, but they love to learn. And, and you'll, you'll see that evident with the last clip of the video. You'll see the excitement 
that the young men have um, when it comes to, to education. Daniel, can I uh, do a little hand here? Okay. like no signal. Okay. Stay here till I get the volume right. Did they tell you that there's no hope for him? They sent me over. Go back where you come from. Please. Let me see. If there's a chance. There's no chance. No. Did they tell you that there's no hope for him? They sent me over. Go back where you come from. Please. Let me see. If there's a chance. There's no chance. Now go, please. It's no use, I tell you. There is use. What can you do? Let me try. Well, there must be some way. Some way of patching up their hearts. I know. In Atlanta, from Atlanta, Georgia, or in Atlanta, Georgia. Lying hard. Lying hard. Lying hard. In the midst of the most humiliating conditions, yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continue to grow and develop. Lying high, lying high, but you know I'm bad, yeah, I know I'm bad, yeah. Freedom, freedom. I am the lying high, but you know I'm bad, yeah, I know I'm bad, In Atlanta, from Atlanta, Georgia, or in Atlanta, Georgia. This is what it's all about, gentlemen. It's what we train for. The Lionhearted group for young black men to come together and learn more about their culture and about their background, where they came from. Lionheart, from what I've seen, really tell, just lets me know where all my ancestors are. Been learning Swahili, my native tongue, my native language. The education I'm not going to get any, any place else. To me, Lionheart is about getting in touch with ourselves, you know, sort of learning more about our roots and where we come from. Basically, educate us on our history and um, help us become men. I get pride out of it. I actually know that I'm helping somebody and that I'm learning more about myself because if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going in life. What I'm searching for um, is to try to be more positive, try to be a more man, try to lead by example, and Lionhearts provide all those things for me. Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your, your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. Some action. Some action. Some action. Some action. Inexpressible cruelties of slavery.
century. Our forebears labored here without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and oppressive conditions. And yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to grow and develop. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, the opposition that we now face will surely fail. We're gonna win our freedom. What you know about? Our freedom. What you know about? Our freedom. What you know about? Well, I think my little brothers are benefiting because they have someone to look up to. Some of them may have not had a father, a father figure or a bigger brother. And me being a grandpa, I feel like I'm really helping them. And at the same time, I'm getting, they really help me more than I help helping them. We're a group. We're a group. I can't be no stronger than you. I might look a little stronger than you. I can't be stronger than you. The satisfaction of knowing that I'm becoming a better man and helping with the little kids, you know, realizing that I will be a role model to somebody. What you learn about today? You lay light and lazy, but don't disrespect their body parts. I learn how to respect others. In life, you're not going to win all the time. You're going to lose sometimes. But how you going to handle that? How you going to deal with the loss? You're going to learn and win the next time, or you going to get mad and quit and pout and lose the next time too? What y'all going to do? And I have learned how to have self-confidence and respect women and don't talk about their body parts. And I learned about respect other people or respect women. And I also learned about the history of American, Black American. You learned about what? Hard and how to trust in yourself. You don't drink. You don't smoke. You don't, you don't do crack. You don't chase women. If everybody in our group is strong, we don't have a weed.
thank you. Um, one of the teachers in there is, was my younger brother, so it's really a blessing to be able to work with him like that. So these are some of the things that we do in terms of the mentoring. Just want to talk really quick about what we found. The program has had a profound effect on the elementary school students. I was interviewed the principal, and I asked him about what he's seen in the difference between those 30 young men who come from the elementary school. He said the main thing is they haven't been in his office since they started the program. And the uh, same thing with, with their teachers. So the, the, they're, they're, they are now school leaders. Everyone, well, many of the other people in the program, in the school, they want to be a part of it. And they want to be able to go now to this field trip every week to the high school. And, and so we've taken this most marginalized group of students and now made them someone who other students look up to. And um, it's been a little bit more slow with the, with the high school students, and I think that's just because of the years of miseducation that they've had. But you can still see that even in their eyes, um, the program has been impactful. Um, just future goals. Obviously, the usual things is to find ways to sustain the program, um, expand the program, and continue to disseminate. And that's my email address if you would like to contact me and ask further questions. Thank you very much. That's a hard act to follow, but um, good morning. My name is Carla Monroe, and again, I'm a research scientist from the University of Georgia, and I also work with the Social Foundations of Education Department. And I'd first like to start off by also thanking the Ohio State University and the conference organizers for inviting me to participate in this important forum. And prior to my remarks, I'm actually going to start off with a little um, quiz that I'm going to have us do collectively. And this is based around some statistics that I pulled from the 2000 census. And we're just going to do this informally by a show of hands. Um, as I go through the questions, we'll go through all of those together. And then I'm just going to sort of debrief the answers at the end to sort of frame the things that I'm going to talk about. So first question, which region of the U.S. experienced a net out-migration of African Americans between 1990 and 2000? And by out-migration, I mean more African Americans left that region than moved into the region. Just show of hands, if you think it's the Northeast... Midwest, the South, or the West? Okay. Second one, just kind of keep your uh, responses in mind and also sort of the patterns that you saw across the audience. Question two, when has more than 50% of the nation's black population lived outside of the traditional southern states? In 2000, in 1990, 1970, and never, none of the above. Okay. Last one. Where do you think the majority of African Americans in our nation live? In cities? In suburbs? Or in rural areas? Okay. A variety of responses. Just to break it down, um, actually for number one, all of these regions except for the South experienced an out-migration of African Americans. The South was actually different in that it experienced a boom where actually 3.6 million uh, African Americans relocated to the South 
which you may not know this, that's the largest black migration in our country since the great black migration of the earliest 20th century. Right now, 56% of our nation's black population lives in the southern states. Question two, uh, when it's more than 50% of the nation's population lived outside of the south? I think most people got this right. It's been never. Always at least 50%, usually at least 51% are in the south, and as we just said, that number's creeping back up again. Last question, where do the majority of African Americans live? Uh, I think most people said the cities, if I remember right, and that actually is right. It's about 51%. But what I want to draw attention to is that 36% are living in the suburbs, and that 36% is certainly not an insignificant number, and it's a number that we're often overlooking. In 2007, when we talk about the African American community, both anecdotally and in research circles, I find that there are a number of longstanding perspectives about our community. And a few that I hope to highlight through this exercise that we just completed are these general tendencies to, number one, emphasize urban, particularly inner city communities in relation to our community. Um, number two, we appreciate the historical role of African Americans in the South, given the history of slavery and civil rights milestones, but we often overlook the salience of the uh, relationship between race and place in contemporary times, uh, even though, as I said, that's where most people are living now. And number three, I wanted to draw attention to how the issues at this conference affecting black males affect the generally understudied group, which is black suburbanites. Um, as we see, the black suburban experience is often materially different than for other groups. For the past two years, my friend and UGA colleague, Dr. Jerome Morris, and I have been engaged in a series of studies in which we're troubling some of these issues that we just addressed through our census quiz. For example, we're particularly looking at what this whole issue of internal black migration means for the school system in the southern states. And just off the top of your head, what do you think is the top state that is getting most of the migration? Georgia, not surprisingly. And especially Metro Atlanta, not surprisingly. My comments today are centering on preliminary findings from a longitudinal study that I'm heading titled, Why Are Black Males Discipline? Patterns, Perceptions, and Consequences of the Discipline Gap in Black Suburbia. In this project, I've been working with ninth grade black males who attend three demographically dissimilar high schools. One school is a black middle class school, one school is a racially diverse middle class school, and the third school is a predominantly black Title I school. And the purpose of my remarks today is to number one, give you a brief understanding of what the discipline gap looks like nationally, and also to narrow it to get a synopsis of what this means in black suburbia. And what I think is powerful about the study, even at this early stage, is that these findings that I'm going to talk about really hold true across these different high schools, across race, across socioeconomic uh, class of the school. When scholars use the phrase, the discipline gap, we're very broadly referring to trends in which black students are overrepresented on measures of school discipline. Now, in real time, this can range from anything from teachers who sort of give students that look like that's enough, to all the way the more um, formal, punitive forms of disciplinary action, like in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, expulsion. What researchers repeatedly have found is that black students, particularly males, are disproportionately disciplined on behavioral sanctions in virtually every major school system across our nation. That's urban school districts and suburban school districts. And just to give you an example of what that means, when we talk about overrepresentation, let's pretend that we have a school in which black students are 30%. If uh, students are more than 33% of kids who are suspended, expelled, put in detention, whatever, then they're considered overrepresented. Unfortunately, people tend to, well, not unfortunately, but there's a lot of emphasis on what this means in urban school districts, but there seems to be a general silence around what this means in suburban school districts. 
And school discipline is inc incredibly important because disciplinary trajectories compromise students' intellectual development. When we think about kids being put out of classrooms, obviously they're not able to learn the material that's being presented. Um, that compromises their grades, obviously, GPAs, um, the likelihood that they'll be able to pass state graduation tests, et cetera. Um, what I'm finding in my work is that it's increasing their vulnerability to gangs. Um, teachers at the schools are far less likely to return to those schools, which is creating a huge turnover problem in some of these schools, and certainly a host of other factors that I could, I could talk about. Now, although these statistics are disturbing on their own terms, what's more distressing is that we as educators and policymakers and researchers very seldom engage these issues with the population that's most affected, meaning black males. How often do we actually talk to these students and get their insight about what they, what, how they understand discipline problems, what they think is an effective way to, to run their school environments to promote positive behavior and learning? Um, in my work, I've chosen to look at the secondary context because this is where the most um, significant problems tend to develop. And based on early ethnographic work, the cohort of African-American males in my study have articulated three areas for us to consider. The first centers on how black males perceive disciplinary actions and policies in their schools and district. Just off the top of your head, what do you think that some of the students may have said when I asked about what do you think about school discipline? How, what do you consider to be effective in schools? Just random comments. Not fair. Not fair. Anyone else? I guess that summarizes the group. <laughs> Interestingly enough, it's just the opposite, and I've just been struck by how common this is. Overall, these students hold very traditional views of school discipline, and in fact, they're very supportive of things that we see in schools. They've spoken in support of zero tolerance policies, zero uh, suspension practices, expulsion practices, and mind you, these are students who have been the targets of this action. They think it's appropriate for as an appropriate consequence for skipping class, leaving school grounds, being in a fight, and so forth as related to their specific situations. And across these interviews, I've been struck by the consistency with which these young men are taking ownership for their decisions to participate in the very activities that I just listed, and they, in fact, have backed some of the administrative decisions that were taken that led to, in every case, their suspension at some point in the school year, and in a few cases, expulsion. Although the young men in the study are endorsing broad disciplinary movements in their district, what they are critical of, and I think rightly so, are the origins of the problem, and this is what I think we really need to consider. Um, in each of the schools, the students' problems tended to emerge from one class in which they were not successful. In some cases, it was a structural issue, and in some cases, it was a personal issue that centered on student-teacher dynamics, and I'm going to speak about those very briefly. Um, in the district where I'm working, which is the Metro Atlanta District, there are 21 high schools, and with the exception of two of the high schools, what the district has done is move to block scheduling. And if you're not familiar with that, basically that means that students are taking four classes on a semester um, schedule rather than six classes across the entire school year, or at least the core classes being across the school year. The class sessions last 90 minutes rather than the traditional 55 that we may be familiar with. Additionally, they've restructured the ability levels where students can take general track, advanced track, and of course their AP course offerings. What this has done at the school level is create a situation where required material is obviously covered in a much more compressed fashion, and there are obviously fewer options for students when it comes to course availability. And what that means is that, let's say a student is taking Algebra 1 in the fall semester. The second half of that school year, what the schools are doing is offering Algebra 2. Well, if a student has failed Algebra 1, obviously they can't go into Algebra 2, so it's effectively a whole other semester before they can get the appropriate course that they need to take. So that's obviously putting them back. Um, 
What I found is that in almost every situation, what this has meant for the students in my study is that they're placed in at least one class that's not appropriate for them. In some cases, due, due to the tracking issue, remember it's just general and advanced in AP, they're enrolled in a class where they feel like the co course content is too easy. Or they're in a situation where the material is just being covered entirely too quickly for them to absorb it and do well in the class. What this is doing is that, as a consequence, uh, boredom with the work or just plain frustration with not being able to master the work is leading them to skip one class. And what ends up happening is that it's just this one class, remember, that they're having problems with. The other classes they're actually doing relatively well in. And this one class is getting to be uh, just the unraveling of their whole academic career, where they're skipping the class, the school looks at that and says, well, skipping is skipping, you're being put in ISS. Well, when they go out of ISS back to the class, obviously the structure of the class hasn't changed, so they start skipping again, which leads to out-of-school suspension, and it's creating um, the forum and conditions for them to get into more significant problems. And just to share a very quick example, there's one young man that really stands out in my mind. He and two other boys from his class, it was a math course that they were having problems with. They cut school one day, or cut the particular class one day, and went down to an elementary school that's about two blocks down the street. And they were trying to just have a prank on the elementary school kids. And one of the kids said, oh, there's a kid outside who has a gun. Well, the school went down on lockdown, and the police came and did a sweep of the area and caught the boys as they were running back to the high school. Um, needless to say, they went through intake, and the eventual decision with the school board was that the kids were expelled for the rest of the year. This happened about a month ago, and he's now effectively out of school for the rest of his ninth grade year. That's the structural level. Personally, the students tend to be very critical of younger teachers, regardless of their race, because they feel like they're much less apt to work effectively with them. As one man young put it, um, all the younger teachers know how to do is just get attitude with the class. They don't know how to do anything else when the kids are misbehaving. Just get attitude is what he said. He said that they're you know, cussing at the students, they're just kind of not answering their questions. Needless to say, that creates dynamics where you know, they're just, there's just ongoing friction between that student and that teacher. These observations are important because they address two very broad schools of thought that other people have raised. And the first is this deficit-based model. Now, this work that I'm doing, I think, really um, counters deficit models because deficit theorists argue that kids across the board have an orientation towards school where they don't value it, they come from the wrong home environment, that's the source of their problems. And I think what this demonstrates is that that's not true at all that the problems can often be very localized to one particular teacher, one particular situation, versus this generic orientation, supposedly, that bad kids have towards school, which I think is a very important distinction to make. The second major um, area where this is important concerns cultural difference arguments, where scholars assert that non-African-American professionals, particularly whites, misunderstand and penalize student actions based on their lack of familiarity with or their clashes with student culture. Um, I want to say from the outset that I think this is absolutely important work and it's, it's really advanced the educational conversation, but I think what's important to note here is that in somewhat of a departure from other regions of the country, Metro Atlanta has a very high percentage of African-American teachers. So when you have African-American teachers working with African-American students, it calls into question this whole notion of why we have a discipline gap if, in fact, the source of the problem is cultural misunderstanding based on race. I think that we really have to... Um, trouble that argument and say what's going on beyond race or teachers, these younger teachers in particular, are not able to work effectively with kids and ask ourselves what is it that novice teachers in particular seem to need across the board to create inviting classrooms, meaningful instruction, appropriate disciplinary policies, and so forth. Um, the second major pillar of my findings centers on educational consequences specific to black males. Um, not surprisingly, these young men's experiences are confirming much of what we already know, that academic achievement is being undercut across the board, 
based on one problem that they're having and the snowball effect that I talked about earlier. Um, what's particularly insidious, I think, is that they're losing credit and, um, and gains made in classes where they are, in fact, doing well. What's been a new angle, however, is that is how black families and communities are really addressing these problems to keep their children on track. And what I'm finding overwhelmingly is that parents and guardians of the children in the study are turning to black churches for mentoring programs, for school-based programs, and just ways of um, keeping their high school careers going when the school system has said, no, you cannot be here because you're expelled, or it's just plain not working for them because the parent is saying, okay, my child needs to be in a different environment. Um, what's rather fascinating is that these parents overwhelmingly have had to develop their own networks to learn about opportunities because the school district itself really doesn't have any dissemination plan for saying, well, here's a way of approaching your education since the traditional structure is not working for you. And if you think about the history of African-American education with self-help, with um, self-education, agency, it's really um, fascinating, I think, to see how the black church, again, is rising to the forefront to sort of educate students and spearhead um, keeping the community on track when we think about the history of things like literacy movements and Sabbath day schools and so forth. Okay. Um, my third and final point concerns what black males' insights and experiences mean for teacher educators. And thinking back to how many of these students are locating the source of their problems with a specific teacher, I think that um, it really highlights the fact that we as teacher educators need to think about how we're working with um, pre-service and in-service teachers to really create classroom environments that are, that are um, meaningful for students and that are effective for students. Um, I think a clear-cut issue that's coming out from this work is the whole issue of block scheduling. In interviewing teachers from a separate study that I'm doing, what I found is that almost none of these teachers, um, when the district moved from the regular schedule to the block schedule, almost none of these teachers were given any insight as to how they might rethink their classes, where they can restructure their curriculum, where they don't have the nine-month school year, but they're just having the semester school year. Almost none of them are get, being given guidance on how to think about running a 90-minute class versus the 55-minute classes. Almost none of them students taught on block schedule. It's really kind of fascinating how, at the teacher education level, we're not preparing um, practitioners to work effectively with the environments that they're going to have to go into. And what I would challenge us, those of us in teacher education to do is to think about not only researching what's going on in our, in our schools and being abreast of those issues, but also taking that information and creating plans of action for how teacher candidates and in-service professionals can go off and work more effectively with students. Because right now, based on this particular district that I'm working in, that just doesn't seem to be the case. And there's a real dis disconnect between school reform, research, and what practice is actually occurring in classes. So I think I'm just about out of time, and I'll just wrap up by saying that I'm so pleased to be here at the forum, and I look forward to moving forward on these issues with you. Thank you. It's really hot in here, isn't it? I think they did it on purpose so we could cut the conference short. But that ain't going to happen. 
Well, you know, um, I always tell my student that a, a professor is someone that talks in other people's sleep. <laughs> and I think that I may be doing that if I don't give you a chance to stretch out and, uh, you know, get some um, circulation going in your blood. So if everyone could just stand up and stretch out really quick, get some blood going through your legs, through your uh, gluteus maximus. Okay. That's okay. And uh, for for Senator Miller, I know you probably took off already, but I just wanted to, um, and I don't want to have any oppression Olympics here, but I do want to say that in California. There are 22,000 African-American males in college, while there are 44,000 African-American males in prison. So we're, we're dealing with a structural system that's networked throughout the United States. This may be a red, red state and it may be a blue state where I come from, but you know what? Conditions for African-American male youth are horrid any part of the country we enter. This talk is based on research I've conducted in Oakland, California on the criminalization of black and Latino youth. For the purpose of time, I will focus on the African-American male youth I studied, although I have found very similar experiences with Latino male youth. I've extensively observed and interviewed 20 African-American male youth and informally observed an additional 40 more over the course of five years. One of my key findings in relation to these youth in the school-to-prison pipeline is this. Young black males encounter systems of hypercriminalization in most institutions that they interact with in society. Hypercriminalization is the persistent and detrimental application of crime control discourses and practices on marginalized populations. I didn't cite this, but this is Rio's 2006. Uh, a youth in the study, D'Artagnan, uh, explains, man, it's like everywhere we go, we get watched. We get pocket checked twice, three times a day. He's explaining here the everyday process by which hypercriminal imposes itself in his life. Here he is referring to being harassed by police. However, beyond police and probation officers, these young men feel criminalized by even nurturing institutions. D'Artagnan continues, every day teachers got to sweat me, police got to pocket check me, mom's got to trip on me, and my PO's got to stress me. Here we see teachers, police, probation officers, parents, and even parents participating in the criminalization of these young men. What I found with all of these young men is that there is a constant, often unintended, but very prevalent corroboration between nurturing institutions and punitive institutions. In other words, with the decline of the welfare state and the emergence of the era of mass incarceration, 
the right arm of the state has merged with the left arm of the state. The punishing arm of the state has merged with the nurturing arm of the state and formed a system that's very much penetrated by crime control policies and discourses. This is having detrimental consequences on uh, and they're very, very visible in the everyday lives of young black males. All we have to do is go out there and uh, hang out with them for a little while and we'll realize the detrimental impact. 15-year-old Ronnie from Oakland further explains, My grandma keeps asking me about when I'm going to get arrested again. At school, my teachers talk about calling the cop again to take me away. The cop keeps checking up on me. My PO is always knocking on my door trying to talk shit to me. Even at BYA the youth development organization, the staff treat me like I'm going to fuck up again. Hypercriminalization has created an extremely punitive and detrimental environment in the lives of young African-American males. This material and symbolic violence has generated an identity among these youth that simultaneously resists and embraces criminalization, whereas criminalized youth resist criminalization through criminality. That is, young men who have been treated as criminals from a young age embrace this label because they, they have, this is all they have been given. They develop and, embra and embrace dissident identities, Robin Kelly has talked about this, uh, that provide a space for temporary autonomy from a mainstream system that sees them as villains on an everyday level. It is within this realm of structural and cultural hypercriminalization that the hyphy movement in Oakland, California and, and um, Northern California has become so popular among African-American male youth. And here's a definition of, of hyphy. Um, it means acting out, defying authority, breaking rules, being antagonistic. It's a cultural practice taking place, and it's actually very uh, influential now at the national level. I think you'll be seeing more of it come into your neck of the woods. It's a hip-hop dance style that involves spontaneous, sporadic, and quote-unquote dumb dance moves. That's what the, the youth call it. They talk about it as uh, go dumb, get stupid, and ride the yellow bus. <laughs> now, we could see this as a pathological thing that these kids develop, and we could blame them and blame hip-hop, you know, but in reality, what's going on is that they're developing not a resistance that's revolutionary because I want to caution us not to be overtly over-celebratory, but survival strategies, plain and s simple persistence. Youth use the following language to describe it, as you can see there. Um, for example, youth will spontaneously, spontaneously act ridiculous or go dumb, in their words, in the middle of class or in the middle of the schoolyard. And uh, I, I'll give you an example. And I, I didn't, I observed this not just in classes, but also a cop pulled these kids over, and they were just hanging out, five of them on the street corner. They weren't, you know, doing anything. Pulls them over, lines them up, and one of them just uh, went dumb, which meant, which meant he took his hat off. He had dreadlocks started shaking his dreadlocks around and just started hopping around and dancing. Of course, the cop didn't know what to do. Finally, he just, uh, you know, slapped him against the car, handcuffed him, and threw him inside. 
I have observed this multiple times in multiple schools. One commonality I have found is that students go dumb in front of teachers or administrators who have treated them as such. Here comes the yellow bus. This is why the yellow bus comes in. In other words, they have carnivalized the very stigma that has been imposed on them from a very young age. Hyphy culture, then, is a subculture that celebrates irrationality. It is born from the frustration with society's demand for young black males to succeed in the mainstream despite the many structural and punitive buffers that prohibit them to do so. L. Janelle Dance has excellently written about this, and she says that African-American male youth develop tough fronts, performances of being mean and men enough, not because they're pathological or resisting or, again, trying to become, you know, we're observing them as revolutionaries because that's what we want to see, right? But, they're, uh, but rather because they have tried and tried to succeed in the system but have been systematically excluded. About half a century ago, the decolonial scholar, France Fanon, talked about this phenomenon. I had rationalized the world and the world had rejected me on the basis of color prejudice. Since no agreement was possible on the level of reason, I threw myself back toward unreason. In their attempt to be accepted by the mainstream, young, street-savvy black men are treated as suspect and criminal on everyday levels. This has led them to develop a dissident culture that provides them what Hakeem Bey calls temporary autonomous zones. These zones are neither good nor bad, revolutionary nor pathological. They are simply self-generated escapes for those at the crux of marginalization. Janelle Dance explains that these fronts or performances are survival strategies for young men who have dismal opportunities. However, she also warns that if we don't change our criminalizing practices within the school system, youth can perpetually embrace these labels, leading them deeper into the prison pipeline. Structural practices that have come to be to hypercriminalized young black men have contributed to the development of survival strategies that internalize irrationality and criminalization in young black men. Not, not as pathology, but as survival, not as revolution, but as persistence. If you want these young men to respond positively and incorporate into the mainstream, we must em- eliminate those forces responsible for criminalizing our children. This means that we have to eliminate zero-tolerance, punitive policies, and other crime control practices that are now deeply embedded in every institution in our society. I'll give you an example. Just today, turn on the TV for 10 minutes on the news. There were two young men wanted by the sheriff in this county for passing bad checks. And then there was another scene where a school has decided to criminalize baggy pants. It's everywhere. In the end, it's about giving these young men choices because their unreason is really reason that they have chosen to unreason because those with reason have labeled them unreasonable. Reason that they have chosen to unreason, it's choice, it's a matter of choice here, because those with reason have labeled them unreasonable. Ronnie concludes for us, 
Going dumb is stupid. We know it. That's why we do it. What other choice do they give us? Thank you. We have some time for Q&A. We have the mics here at the front of the room, and we ask that you come up to the mic, and we can even form somewhat of a line at the mic, and we will try and keep the, make sure that you have a question as, as opposed to a long comment, and we will please direct them to the particular uh, panelists that you'd like to address your question. And we'll begin with you, sir. Good morning. My name is Leonard Moore, and I work for the uh, Ohio Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Dr. Miles, I got a question for you. The Lionheart Program, since we work with adult offenders, can it be adjusted for adults? Because I noticed that it was high school kids, uh, elementary kids. Can you adjust? Uh, yeah, and email me, and we can definitely talk about it. We have um, a developed curriculum and strategies and um, very specific pedagogical practices that allow us, like if you even think about the theme music or the, the things that you heard, we were having a dialogue, the youth, what they are talking about, and us, what we want to talk about together. So, yeah, we can definitely talk about that. Right. I'll take the uh, young man in there. Yeah, I'm Chris now. I'm from uh, Cincinnati, and I work in a uh, very uh, encompassing uh, circle of black males to the point where sometimes I'm discouraged but yet encouraged by being here today. And I'd like to say I've enjoyed all your presentations, but my statement and comment is uh, such a time as this, we all know that radical issues and problems call for radical solutions. And because this issue is cycly, uh, keeping in mind that Dr. Kawanja Gajufu addressed this very issue almost 20 years ago. And all of you have different perspectives, but yet profound. My question is, how do you collectively summarize the issues in your own different perspective to come up with a solution that's radical for this time and this moment? Take a short response from each of the panelists. Mm -hmm. Start with uh, Professor Howard. Yeah, I, uh, uh, can you hear me? Uh, I think uh, that's a good question. I think we've got to somehow understand that I, I don't know that there are are, are single or simple solutions. I mean, there are complex, comprehensive approaches that we've got to take. And I think we all do this work in different ways, and I think each of us have got to utilize our expertise in some ways to begin to think about interventions and possible solutions that might exist out there. I, I wanted to add, before you go any further, have, you each, have each of you ever considered a spiritual uh, approach and component mm -hmm. to this mm -hmm. complex problem that mm -hmm. Definitely, 100%. Um, Asa Hilliard, who's an internationally renowned scholar, says he can summarize his 40 years of educational experience into two sets of statements. All children are learning all things presented to them all of the time, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. <laughs> and all teachers are teaching effectively all of the time, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. Just for my um, work in the district where I'm working, can you hear me? 
Um, what I'm finding is that the most effective ways to garner any kind of change is to get a coalition of parents to together. And that's actually what I'm working on right now. We're very formative, so I can't really give you sort of a one, two, three, this is what we're doing. But what we're focusing on right now is how to make race much more transparent in the school district because as the um, senator addressed earlier, that we have also there an African-American superintendent, predominantly black school board, et cetera, et cetera, but yet they're not necessarily pushing the whole issue of why are African-American students falling back and what we're finding is that getting parents to really take the um, people in these elected positions and also at the school level to task has really been the most effective thing, particularly looking at sort of north-south divides in the county where we live. The north end schools tend to be much more fluent. The south end schools tend to be more economically disadvantaged, and certainly we know the corollaries that go with that. So working with parents and galvanizing parents, I'm finding, is the best solution. I think that... Um, <clears throat> Political consciousness is, is the best avenue, in my perspective. And uh, I think that sometimes, uh, I know in my circles, there's a little fear of talking about presenting political consciousness to a third grader, fifth grader, you know. Um, but that's what I have seen works, and it's an avenue towards uh, self-realization. I think that even uh, some aspects of being culturally centered and even risking a little bit of essentialism so that these individuals use it as a stage to then be able to transform into a full, you know, citizen, a full human, because we've been dehumanized. And so this political consciousness, spiritual consciousness is going to bring humanity to us, and sometimes we need that space to be a, maybe a little bit essentialist, but then learn from it and move on. But I think that's the first step. Thank you. I'll now take the question to my right. Um, things are both getting better and getting worse. I mean, if you think about, um, I highly suggest you go online and get some go dumb videos so you can really see what's happening in the streets because it is off of the chain. Okay. No joke. Okay. No joke. Go online and look up, um, get dumb hyphy movement and they have some videos that really demonstrate. So in that standpoint, as it becomes a normalized process, mm a celebratory process to be permanently dumb and stupid, it, it, my estimation, um, we're, but then when you look at something like Lionheart and when you spend time in Tivoli Gardens or in Johannesburg, where, condition, where material conditions are even more destitute, you always see hope. So things are getting better and getting worse, and, I, and I'm just looking for solutions. Would the panelists direct people to the movie Rise as an example of this dance and hype style? Is it so there's a difference. Yeah, there's it's rise a difference. is very different. Is. This okay. is go dumb, get stupid, ride the special education, dumb bus. Okay. Okay, that's not – it's very different. Good. Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> okay, I'll take the question on my left. 
My name is uh, Robert Caldwell, and I live and work in the neighborhood that folk in Columbus are familiar with called Wyland Park, which is directly south of this uh, campus. And um, my uh, question to you all, and it's actually probably to all of the participants, not only as uh, those of us in the audience, but the panelists going forward for the balance of the day, is how much of your understanding about not only your analysis of the problem, but maybe what you might posit as a solution or a strategy for addressing the problem comes from your own experience in attempting to engage and work with young African-American males. And, you know, as a sort of a, a comment, uh, editorial comment to that question, I know that I'm not a researcher by profession but a practitioner, but I'm a thoughtful practitioner and have recognized the value of my own personal involvement in attempting to work with young African-American males and how that informs my opportunities to influence policy and funding and things along that line in the other context that I travel. So I'm curious to know your own personal experience and how that has informed what you do. Can I ask just two of the panelists to respond to that question so that we can get to additional questions? I'd like to give a response. Actually, this work has just been fascinating to me because actually I'm researching in the same district where I formerly taught and what's been fascinating to me is just, just get a whole new um, wealth of information for how to work with the teacher candidates that I work with than I got as a teacher candidate when I was an undergraduate and in grad school. And I guess, um, when, I think you asked about solutions. One of the things that I try to do differently with my students that I didn't get is to just try to get them to appreciate not only knowing your content, knowing how to do a lesson plan and all of that, but just the intangible benefits that come from developing relationships with students and parents because you know, anything happens within the context of a relationship. And when kids are um, not liking your class or maybe giving you problems, that plays out a whole lot differently when they feel like you don't like them, you're not interested, you don't care, than the teacher that they feel like takes a sincere interest and cares what they're doing. So I try to get them to understand that, you know, you have to build a relationship with the students. And, you know, there's something to be said for a little bit of off-task time where you're just building class cohesion and not feeling like, bell rang, time to get to the thing, which I think is sort of the mindset that I was in. And I think what, unfortunately, a lot of teachers get because you're so driven on test scores and on, ta on task time and all these kinds of things that we're sometimes losing, you know, building the connection where they're even buying what you're trying to sell them because, I mean, the classroom has the potential to be so indifferent. So I guess that's sort of how I think about it, that I try to work with my students differently than my professors worked with me. I would also chime in and say I think, I think it is probably for a number of us, it's very personal. I don't think we just do this work because it seems like it's somewhat intriguing. It's, it's personal because in so many ways it reflects our realities. Uh, Miles talked about the fact that where we grew up, where in many cases, uh, you know, we weren't supposed to be here. Uh, and, 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 and despite the fact that we overcame obstacles, I would say by no means were we the smartest or, or the best. There were so many other young black men who, who should have and could have been here but were not here for a number of circumstances. So I think we're all researchers, and we all have to continue to ask questions as to why and how and who and when uh, are, are some of the factors involved in this process. Uh, and like I say, it's, it's personal. For me. I think about it from my standpoint. I've got three sons, so this work is not just something I'm curious about. This is about the kind of life that they're going to leave, you know, as they, as they continue to grow and, and mature. So I think it's got to be personal. I think when it's personal, we become more passionate, more committed to it. Despite the fact that we have folks who tell us as researchers you're supposed to be objective and you can't be too close to your participants or your subject here, I say when we talk about the, the, the severity of this problem we're talking about, if you're not passionate, if, you're not, if you don't feel a, a sense of urgency about it, I don't think you can do the work as well. Take the question here. Yes, my name is Joseph Chapman, and I am 
I'll ask one panelist to respond. The response? Okay. I think that uh, Dr. Dr. Irving um, demonstrated some models, and I really like um, your comment because we need more models. But I think that we, you know there there is a start there. Thank you. Thank you. The question over here to the left. Good morning, panel. My name is Abdul Rafiq. I'm the founder of the organization of Righteous Thought in Action. Uh, Dr. Rios, uh, your statement uh, presented an excellent segue for the, my question in the sense that when you spoke about the black males, their behavior of unreasonableness, I need to go back and question and challenge our approach towards uh, white America that we have always sought to be, sought reasoning with white America, and white America has continually resisted it. And I believe that the behavior in our youth today is a manifestation mm -hmm. of that. And I would like to know um, where all of you stand on that. Thank you. Again, I'll ask the respondents to just give me two responses, starting with Professor Rios. Uh, again, I mean, I think uh, Fanon said it best. You know, we, I, I realize that these young men, as criminal as the system claims them to be, are always, I mean, I did their life stories. Um, so they told me from their grandmas, their moms, you know, hours and hours of talking about their family. And how, like, from young ages, they're trying to be reasonable. They're trying to make it in a rough system. They're trying to, I mean, for a young black male who lives in the inner city to avoid you know, touching the drugs, touching the gun on a daily level, um, you know, insulting young women when it's so easy to do all these things, and, and the majority don't, even the ones that society has deemed criminal, I mean, that, that in itself is, is, a, is a strong sort of survival strategy that the system needs to incorporate and say, well, if they're already using these persistent strategies, we have to t uh, take them on and, and, and use them. So in terms of reason, I believe that these young men are completely within reason even when they act in negative ways and that that provides a solution because if they're being unreasonable in a reasonable way, then what we need to do is just tap into their reason. They have it. We just always want to pretend that they're just completely ignorant We'll go to the next question, and I'll take the question here at the right.
fifty ten million dollars. <laughs> and I want to ask um, Dr. Howard, if you had ten million dollars on that, how would you spend it to ensure basic skill mastery by fourth grade? And what areas would you direct and how to fix that? My last question is Dr. Irving. Um, if you had ten million dollars or less, how would you spend it to uh, make academic achievement a top priority in the black community, particularly with single black mothers? And can I ask that we entertain those two questions in the essence of time and we can get the communication to the other panelists? Okay. I, I really appreciate your question. It's a good one. I think it's practical. If, if I were in that position, you know, I believe in not expecting or wanting others to do something that we can do for ourselves. So I would like to see, uh, you know, that $10 million in some way, shape, or form reinvested into, into families, homes, and communities so that uh, working class parents who, 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 who want to do the things that would help to increase skill mastery are able to do that. Uh, parents are, are, are you know, I, I, I despise the notion that parents aren't involved, parents aren't concerned, black parents aren't concerned about, uh, about their children's education. Uh, you can't tell me folks who work two jobs uh, aren't concerned about education. Folks mm -hmm. who, single parents who, who do, uh, you know, yeoman's work to try to keep, uh, you know, uh, ends tied together don't care about their children's education. If there are ways in which we can provide opportunities for parents to be involved so they can understand how to assist teachers in the development of the skill mastery. Also, after-school programs or community programs that could be enhanced with different kinds of literacy programs or, or different kind of uh, enhancement programs that will continue to allow them to build core academic skills. So I would put it within communities and homes. And a short response from Professor Moore. Oh, from, I'm sorry. From um, I would start with... I, I don't begin by worrying necessarily about the money. I, I would find the right people, um, those in our community who love, understand, and are willing to go into the streets and connect with our children. I would get them together, get us together, plan, build, and collaborate, and then use the funding to, um, to, to implement the program. So I would really just start with the right personnel, those folks who really are not afraid of our children. Okay, as you all could imagine, this, this is a very intriguing set of questions that we've had put before us, but we're really trying to make sure that we can cover all of the panelists today. So I'm going to ask that we take one final question. However, here's, and I've just thought this up, so I have not cleared this with the conference organizer, so <laughs> forgive me. Um, executive decision of a moderator. But what I would ask that you do, the ones of you who are still standing, if you could please write your questions down. This is actually an ongoing conversation and an ongoing research agenda that the Kerwin Institute is involved with. And so your questions can make their way both to our researchers and they can make their way into the work of the Kerwin Institute. So I ask that you write your questions very legibly and at the back well, right outside of the doors, there's a table there. And if you could leave those questions with someone at the table, then we will do our best to make sure that there's a venue by which those questions get some acknowledgement. So I'll take the last question here for the woman on my left. Okay, good morning. My name is Sandy Smith, and I work for the Columbus Foundation. And uh, my question is, is directed to Dr. Irving, and everyone else can jump in. We are a funder of a number of programs like yours, the Lionheart program here in Columbus, after-school programs that work in the schools and in the community, most of which 
are not by African Americans for African Americans. So my question is, where are the practitioners that you're aware of, the academicians and the researchers, on developing one, perhaps national networks to help African American communities develop programs similar to yours that are effective and development of best practices that can be disseminated in models that include the role of parents, because most, most programs focus on the kids, but we're not seeing the, the involvement of the parent beyond the time that the kid is in the program, which they live, you know, 24 hours a day. Second, the longevity of the program beyond middle school into the young adult life cycle of the African-American male, and then the development of metrics that can effectively look at the long-term impact of these programs on African-American males? Thank you. Um, that's an excellent question, and I actually have a, a curriculum guide. It doesn't, it's not a, these are not pre-created lesson plans, but one of the things that I, I strongly suggest is in education, we start over here. These are the children, and this is the content area, or this is the knowledge. And the question always is, how do we get these children to learn about this? How do we get these children to learn about this? And we sort of take a little different approach. Even just starting with the song in the video, um, it's a song by T.I. called What You Know About That. And it's a really great song because he's saying, you know, um, what you know about this, what you know about that, talking about his community. And then he says, I know all about that. Right. So it's this dialogue. So we we change that question. We don't ask the, the students. We don't say, what can we get them to learn about this? We start with the question is, what can we do to learn about the student? Right. So in that song or in, in the music, there's a lot of conversation about traps. Initially, we thought traps were the projects, that when you're, when you're in the traps, and we, so we, we brought that question. We're playing the song. We remixed the song with Malcolm X, Sonia Sanchez, um, Martin Luther King. We remixed the song they know. So they come in, what you know about that? And we're asking them the same question, what you know about this? Well, we, and so we begin the dialogue with, tell us about the traps. Well, they gave us a full-fledged lesson plan of what the traps are, drugs, the projects, teenage pregnancy, all of the traps that are in their lives. These are normally boys, if we would have came in and said, we have this great program we want to tell you about, right? They would have been quiet, and they would have felt us out and said, oh, these brothers for real. But we just switched it. I know a little bit about that. I know a little bit about this, but help me understand more. And we had a, a full-fledged dialogue, and it started with um, understanding the music and remixing the music in a way to meet them um, where they're at. Ma'am, ma'am. If I had $10 million, I would give it to you so you could develop this network throughout the country so that those benchmarks to help these youth would be established. I mean, the community, and there's a real point here, that we just disseminate the larger sort of generalized knowledge, and it's the community that we're accountable to, those of you working in the trenches that have the knowledge on how to directly affect change with these young men. Affect I'm so sorry. I have to play the real bad chick up here, right? And I really have to say that we're going to have to close the panel at that point. But I want to also alert you to a way in which this conversation, at least in the local community, will continue. In November, November, mark your calendars, November 9th through the 11th, 
here at the Kerwin Institute, we will be having a conference called It's Transformative Conversation and Discussion on Practices about how we talk about race, not only in education, but in housing and health care. And so these are the kinds of conversations that we at Kerwin are committed to. And November 9th through the 11th, 11th right here on the university campus, we will be exploring these questions. So look for, check our website. Um, and also some of the email networks that we are reaching you through to get more information on this conversation about how we transform our discussions on race and move beyond questions about disparities to talking about practices and strategies that really move us forward in our conversations about race. Please join me in thanking the panelists. We will be continuing this conversation with the next panel, so please stretch your legs and be ready to reassemble very quickly so that in the essence of time we get everything done we need to do today.